Hello and welcome to Carbon Removal Newsroom. I'm Ross Kenyon, lead strategist with the Nori Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today I have with me multiple Nori colleagues. It's been a tough week for everyone. Hard to schedule, a lot on everyone's mind. So thank you so much for being here. Today I have Alessandra Guerra, Director of Corporate Development at Nori. Hello. Hey, Alessandra. Melina White, who I've been calling you, what, a moonlighting marketer. Is that okay for you, Melina? That sounds wonderful for me. Hi, Russ. Hi. <laughs> and Alden Donnelly, Director of Carbon Economics at Nori. Hey, hey Russ. How are you? I am doing well. So let's go through this outline and give listeners a chance to know what we're going to talk about today. Um, Lena and I did a bonus episode of Reversing Climate Change about Black Lives Matter, climate justice, and carbon remo removal. So we're going to go back through some of that. Melina has some updates she wanted to share. We wanted to talk about Climeworks. They just closed a 73 million Swiss francs financing round. Um, the Savory Institute and Timberland have a new partnership around regenerative leather for a new line of boots. The last thing we want to talk about, too, is there are new rules for 45Q or new guidance from the Treasury Department. So... Alden, we're going to give you a chance to explain what exactly that means for the carbon removal industry at large. So, yeah, why don't we just kick it off here at the top? Melina, I know you had some stuff you wanted to talk about with regard to Black Lives Matter and um, movement on that front. Yes, Ross. So just kind of following up to what I thought was a really great constructive conversation we had the other day um, towards the end of the podcast we shared some of the solutions that you and I have been reading about and think can deliver real change to some of the issues, key issues that the protests have been around here in the United States. And really at this point, globally, you know, daily peaceful protesting that's happening. And so one, I, one thing I wanted to share with everyone was an organization that's really starting to build momentum since the protests began, and that's Campaign Zero. So Campaign Zero is this nonpartisan organization that is trying to deliver what they describe as data-driven solutions to help, first off, first, most importantly, is reduce and in some ways eliminate violent interactions with police in the community and bring, communi and bring policing back to a community-type model where, again, police officers are living, working, and relating to the people who they vow to protect and serve. And it's pretty cool what, what they've come up with. Their, their main solutions are around these 10 things. And what's great is you can take those 10 elements and compare it to your local police department and say, okay, is my local police department um, practicing any of these 10 elements? Is there something that I can do, you know, bring to my local city council, local city leaders to see how we can get closer to that 10? So some of the things that they've mentioned, again, and they've got a lot of data on their website that helps to support how these methods produce results, is first off, ending the broken windows policy, policing, community oversight, limit use of force, independently investigate and prosecute cases involving police, community representation in the police force, body cams on police, training, and that's a big part of training around de-escalation, which I mentioned the other day, and for-profit policing, demilitarization, and fair police union contracts. So these are 10 things that you can help push in your local community, which again, shows through their data 
to, to deliver really great results. And one campaign that's a part of Campaign Zero that's really been uh, getting shared around social media this week is what they call hashtag eight can't wait. And it's eight elements that they've come up with that can help to greatly reduce police violence immediately. In fact, by their measure, it would decrease police violence by 72%. So if you look up hashtag eight can't wait on social media, you can learn a little bit more about it. Or to learn about the entire campaign, you can go to joincampaignzero.org. And again, I think it, they've got some great solutions. It's a nonpartisan movement and very timely right now. Links to that is in the show notes or to both of those things are in the show notes right now. I'm curious what, especially Alessandra and Alden, what you both think about what will happen to the carbon removal field in general. I'm not sure there's been that many climate justice discussions always within carbon removal as an industry specifically. I imagine we'll see quite a bit more of that. And um, I think there are also things that you can do as a company or an organization. I know we tend to think about this as we're growing the team. How do we do so in an equitable manner? And I watch pretty closely Carbon 180's various internal policies for HR for how they are doing so in, a, in an equitable way. Um, so I don't know. Are, how are you both thinking about this? Well, um, I think it's a whole new time for how we do business. Um, and before, I mean, we're, we saw a growing, uh, an increase of people or companies making commitments to the environment. And I also expect that they'll be, be making more increased commitments to, I don't know, having good business, having more justice in, in their supply chain, um, being more equitable and fair. And I think it's a completely new way of doing business that makes me somewhat hopeful for the future, because if we don't, then everything's just going to be siloed and we're going to be forgetting that they're actual impacts to to everything, the way that we're operating, the way that we're procuring our supplies, et cetera. I, I share um, um, uh, Alexandra's optimism, but with a little more caution, I, I, I am worried because I, I think we, we can see in this crisis what, um, what the value of education is. And in this new economy that's going to emerge out of this crisis, I think it's going to be hard, as hard as ever for people who haven't enjoyed the benefits of, of a great education to, um, mm. to succeed. So I, I'm hoping that we find a way to um, um, bridge that gap. I, I hope we, we start seeing all sorts of um, training programs being launched. And it's going to have to be by corporations because government's not going to have the money. Um, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm an old lady, I'm 65. And when I was in my twenties and first going to work, um, corporations had very well developed and intensive training programs. And that's, that fell away over the decades. And I, I, I really hope to see that coming back because I think that's going to be essential. Why do you think that fell away, Alden? Cause I'm, I'm very curious. It seems like with this, uh, impact zero or, I might have called it the wrong name, that it's about community involvement. And so if we had that before with corporations, why don't we now? I don't really know the answer to that question, though, you know, for many decades after the Second World War, a lot more, a, lot, a much higher proportion of the cities and towns in, in North America, not just North America, were what we used to call company towns. So 
the the uh, in, in, you know there was a time when companies were more identified with the communities in which they had their principal operations and there was uh, um, um, there was much more of a uh, of a connection um, you know back in those days if you were racing sailboats on the weekend you know the the local lumber company probably lent all their radios to you and and that sort of thing just doesn't happen anymore and that and the training the commitment to employee training and continuing education i think was part of that um we've got to get it back well fair enough that sounds like a bigger conversation too in other news as one says when one is hosting a news program uh climbworks seemingly will not stop getting news since we talked about them last week with regard to Stripe's negative uh, emissions purchases. Um, they're doing interesting work with Lufthansa in um, producing jet fuel from captured carbon. And now we see that they uh, just did a 93 million Swiss franc financing round. So big stuff coming out of Switzerland, it looks like. Yeah, it was it ninety three million? I thought it was seven, seventy three million. I, I said seventy three, didn't I? You said ninety three. Oh, okay. Mine works with ninety three, so just go with it. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I'm staring right at it. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, seventy three million Swiss francs. Yeah, I think that's and it's the biggest private investment they've ever that's ever gone or or private round ever raised for direct air capture seventy five million. Um, 73 million Swiss francs, 75 million US dollars. <laughs> yeah, so I should get that conversion right. Yeah. I, I got to say, good on them. And and when it comes to direct air capture, I'm I'm a fan of of their technology. Um, I am a little bit uh, cautious about about all of this though, because for the most part, the CO2 that's going to be drawn down with that technology is going to be processed and then in almost immediately re-released re to the atmosphere um, uh, in, in modern fuels. So on the one hand, it's, it's a really good story in that they're displacing a certain amount of fossil fuel use. On the other hand, it's not permanent uh, CO2 drawdown for the most part. Um, it's technology that can be used for that purpose, but the, the um, investment that is flowing to direct air camp capture is primarily interested in recycling the CO2 into um, into next generation liquid fuels. So it's, it's a good story, but the incremental uh, emission impact isn't going to be as large as the potential for that technology is. The classic counter argument to this too, or maybe it's just if you zoom out a little bit, that this technology may port over very nicely to more carbon removal specific activities that would appeal to you in their storage capabilities. So it might start with something that's closer to, to you know, uh, carbon neutral or fuels that are, are uh, less damaging to the environment. But it won't always just be that, right? Some of this technology will accelerate carbon removal in general, even if it's not being applied for something that is truly storing the carbon dioxide that is captured. Right. I, yeah, I totally agree with that. I also think the innovation that the direct air capture um, industry is bringing to us will end up getting incorporated in carbon capture and storage, and there will be a new generation of technology 
that will be way more cost effective and better over time because because of the innovation we're seeing coming out of companies like Climeworks. So it's a, there's a future there that I'm really excited about. I just want to get there faster. <laughs> Yeah. So Alden, I'm curious, what do you think it's going to take for a company that's truly doing a carbon capture method, you know, a truly carbon neutral or excuse me, carbon negative method to to get that seventy five million dollar private equity investment to really, you know, accelerate their ability to, to scale in the world? I, I I can't speak for for the investors. Uh, um, I, I I think uh, the it, it, you know, and I'm struggling here because one of the things we're not talking about while we're repeatedly talking about Climeworks is enhance in Canada. And so just two months ago, a project went operational that has uh, attracted about 800 million in private investment, so significantly more than Climeworks. And as of March 2020, the emissions from Nutrien's big fertilizer plant in Alberta and the emissions from a big diesel refinery are being captured and injected back into the ground to enhance oil recovery rates, so there's still not even a carbon neutrality there, but that project is starting injecting 1.6 um, million tons a year and has the full build-out capacity to be injecting 14 million tons a year. Um, so it's attracted uh, 10 times the capital investment that Climeworks has attracted and has a much larger significant, uh, not more, more significant uh, sequestration potential. So I'm, 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 I'm saying that I, I love to see the capital running in both directions. Um, I think all of the investors, again, are not just attracted to what the technology can do today, but what they think the next iterations of both technologies looks like. And I think it's that investment in innovation that's going to pay out for us more than what either of those projects are doing right now. I think there's something at the heart of all of the, uh, the questions of, you know, where do we invest our money when it comes to carbon um, removal, whether it's ecological or industrial, which is permanence. You said the word permanent all in my ears mm -hmm. just perked and it just reminded me of, you know, what happened with Stripe. And I won't go too much into it because I know you've already done an episode on this, Ross, but Stripe's uh, main motivation in, in well, let's, let's start back. They started off wanting to, you know, give a million dollars to uh, carbon dioxide removal uh, initiatives and they were looking across the board from natural to industrial. And then in the end, they decided, okay, we're only gonna invest in industrial because they wanted to have permanence of over a thousand years of storage. Um, so what's interesting is like, yes, direct air capture can, um, can sequester and store carbon over long periods of time. But if you're using it for enhanced oil recovery, or if you're putting it into fuels, like that permanence becomes like, an issue. It's not necessarily permanent um, because you're going to be emitting CO2 ultimately at the end of the process. Um, and that's not to to be like, oh, this is not a good thing. It's not helpful. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. It's just it's the trickiest issue I see in the space of carbon removal is the issue of permanence and like coming up with a standard, like an index of what exactly is permanent, because something that's permanent for, you know, regenerative grazing or regenerative agriculture or afforestation is going to be different than direct air capture for 
you know, synthetic fuels or direct air capture that goes into carbonates. Um, and so having a standard to talk about permanence, I think, is the most um, useful thing for us to start to compare apples and oranges. I, I think you make very good points, Alexandra. And and permanence is a bit of a sticky issue from from my perspective. And um, and I actually, you know, don't want to, you know, make this too much Nori promotion, but I think Nori so far has got that question right. I'll tell you where my issue is with the concept of permanence. Totally agree that if um, we're giving enterprises credit for pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, the objective is that that carbon removal be permanent. But we also live in a world where every oil company that gets a license to drill oil signs a contract that commits that company when they stop producing oil to cap and um, and cap that uh, oil well so that it's not releasing pollution or emissions after it stops producing oil. And a very large share or significant share of those oil wells end up being owned by corporate entities that declare bankruptcy when they stop producing oil and they become abandoned wells. And that's our current long-term version of, of so, so we have a long history of uh, corporate commitments to uh, deliver on the environment, and I would consider that sort of a, an, an analogy to permanence. And I'm not confident, even if uh, permanence agreements are being signed today by corporations who are perfectly well-intended and have, are, are doing everything right, I'm not confident 30 years from now when the third generation of owner of that obligation declares bankruptcy and the permanence commitment is gone that um, we're going to be happy with how we approach that question right now. In Nori, what we've said is one NRT is an incremental ton of CO2 dropped down, brought, drawn out of the atmosphere and retained under a contractual arrangement for at least 10 years. And we did that on purpose because if someone wants to buy reductions that are equivalent to permanent, which is 100 years worth of CO2, then we're, we're trying to communicate by 10 Nori uh, NRTs, 10 times 10 years. And don't assume that for a payment of, you know, for, for a series of payments over 10 years, a landowner of any sort is actually going to find they have the capacity to guarantee that that carbon stock will be maintained for 100 years. Unless that carbon that's drawn out of the atmosphere is almost immediately mineralized, that, that's not a commitment we, 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 can, we, we can place confidence in. I don't think we should be building our business model around commitments that we can't place confidence in. This is exactly the kind of carbon removal banter I think our listeners want to geek out on. So. <laughs> Thanks for doing that. All right, I'm going to use my prerogative as, as the host here to, to scoot us along. I'm not sure how long these episodes will be uh, in the future. That's something that we should look into what people want. But let's scoot it along and, and see how it goes. Um, the, one of the other stories that we singled out this week is that the Savory Institute and Timberland have a new partnership around regenerative uh, leather for a new line of boots. First question, when can I get a pair? Uh, second question... How exactly uh, does this work? What is happening right now with regenerative grazing? And it looks like procurement is happening with some products that are coming out of uh, this specific approach. 
I'm 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 hesitating to jump in. <laughs> well, maybe actually, Alden, before maybe you jump in, I think it's uh, let's start off with like what exactly is regenerative grazing, um, and how is yeah. that different from typical grazing? Um, regenerative grazing can involve a whole bunch of things, but it's it's where the operator manages the grasslands to um, it's really timing and movement. So the key part of regenerative mm -hmm. grazing. Is, is instead of having um, livestock all in one place and delivering them feed and having them uh, um, basically destroy a patch of ground, you manage your, you rotate your livestock in cycles, you're tracking what's happening in the soil. And you can actually turn growing, um, grazing livestock on the land from uh, extractive or regenerative practice to uh, an extractive practice to a regenerative practice by shifting the by as soon as as soon as they're um, they've um, maximized the value of their excrement on a certain patch of land and before they've um, uh, depleted the soil of its of its complete plant surface looking for food you move them so it's uh, so just pure uh, uh, very conscious rotation rotations of the livestock is really, really useful. And also being very attentive to what kind of grasses um, are, are being grown on the land. And in many cases, um, when you're looking at land that has been seriously dehydrated, as often due to fires and pest infestations, not necessarily livestock um, uh, impacts, uh, opportunities to rebuild the carbon stocks and biomass and soil health and moisture retention in those grasslands can be huge, really, really huge. It's a pretty good summation. Are you happy with that, Alessandra? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> well, I know you're doing it for the benefit of the listener, but I think, I think that was fine. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now, the other side exactly. of it, it's it, it's difficult enough to 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 develop uh, verifiable estimates of changes in soil organic carbon stocks as they relate to cropping practice changes. It's more difficult to um, uh, really monitor and prove your outcomes in grasslands. Uh, there, are, uh, Point Blue um, has a group of scientists who are doing really great work in that area. Um, I love what Pasture Map is trying to do. And there's a couple of large corporations, not just, and I, I, I like what Patagonia is doing, uh, not just Patagonia, who are really working hard at um, getting the science of soil organic carbon estimation in grasslands right. And I think we're going to see some very, very interesting breakthroughs in the next 12 months. It's going to be really exciting. Breakthroughs like what? Um, I think we're going to see some very, very good combinations of uh, uses of drone-based, drone-borne sensors and satellite imaging that's going to enable livestock producers to be uh, more responsive in real time to changes in the above ground biomass and soil carbon stocks. And they're going to be able to very, very precisely work on um, livestock yield and rotations. And, it's, and it, it's, it, I, I think we're very close to a really good place there. Well, from a from a consumer point of view, learning about this this partnership really gets me excited because I think you know over the last almost twenty years now, 
I think that businesses have been able to really educate people about food systems, you know, where their food is coming from. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, maybe 2% of the American population had ever went and purchased organic food. And now organic, natural, non-GMO food is a really big part of a lot of people's everyday diet, you know, and they seek out those products. But it hasn't made its way to the fashion industry yet. You know, we know that fast fashion is a huge issue and not only does it have an impact on communities, on people, but it also has a huge negative impact on the planet. And so seeing companies like Timberland, that's a huge fashion company and, and reaches people who maybe never once thought about how their clothing or shoe purchase impacts the climate, impacts the environment. This is a first step in really starting to educate people and making them aware that the clothing you choose does make a difference, does have an impact. And also just educating people about regenerative agriculture. So I think most have never even heard of it before. So overall, um, even if there are some flaws there, I think this is an excellent move forward for the industry. Yeah, it reminds me oh, a lot yes. about Allbirds, <laughs> where uh, I think, yeah, well, Melina and Ross have talked yeah, about I love Allbirds. Meanwhile, I was looking. <laughs> it's like my regular sneaker. Plug, yeah. I have to plug my friend Mike. I was on the yeah. phone with him last night, and he works at Allbirds, and he was talking about some great things that they're doing over there right now. <laughs> Yeah, and I and it's so funny. Like I was in the middle of looking for new running shoes, and now now I bought Allbirds because I don't know <laughs> if Instagram heard me talking to you about Allbirds, but all of a sudden I'm getting like advertised, and I can go to their website and I can see just a, you know if you scroll through the bottom of the product description for each shoe, you know nine kilograms of CO two was emitted for the shoe, and we offset the rest, and we try to you know uh, use renewable materials. They use wool, etc. And they have this whole story about it. And I'm, this is what I'm imagining mm -hmm. Timberland is now trying to do with their leather. It's like, we're not just like killing cows and making leather out of them. Like we're, we're doing this holistic um, approach where we're restoring the, storing the land, the soil and drawing down CO2, treating cows properly, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is great. If this is like, and it was so funny. My grandfather, I live with my grandparents right now. And he says to me, how much did you pay for those shoes? And I told him. And he goes, I don't understand. He's like, people, normal people are not going to buy those shoes. And I was mm -hmm. like, my generation right. is because we care. We will pay the extra dime or the extra hundred dollars for mm -hmm. the story. And for me to like wear my yeah. shoes and feel one really of my father's favorite sayings is pay me now or pay me later. And that's how I look at things like that. You know, you can invest now or we can have the negative repercussions on society and on the planet later. No matter what we're going to pay. Yeah, exactly. Right. I wonder what it looks like to educate consumers about uh, holistic management and regenerative grazing, because I don't think that's on most people's radars yet. It seems like it just has less awareness than even regenerative agriculture, specifically croplands. But maybe that stuff happens faster than I think. I don't, I don't know that I've ever thought about how long it takes to educate a consumer base about something like that. But Maybe it happens relatively quick. Do we, does anyone know? I, I think. Sorry. I mean, like you. Sounds like yeah, everybody knows. Yeah. <laughs> I think the whole question of of grazing uh, or its livestock production is complicated, and I don't think anybody's done yet. Uh, sort of a painted a a, a a picture that helps. So, 
there's there there are so many different ways to consider this and and one extreme is don't eat meat you know don't don't buy leather um and the other extreme is gee you know if you think about it if you if you raised a cow the right way and you made sure that every part of the cow was put to use the leather the the meat the you know every part of it um you could you could you could describe that whole area as either the worst thing in the world for the environment or the best thing in the world for the environment. And, uh, and I don't think we've done a good job of just looking at the picture and finding a middle ground and then communicating it to the consumer. Well, that sounds like a good place to, to leave it for now. Does anyone have anything else that they, they want to say about that? Well, I think the, the one thing I want to say about that is like, we just need to continue to, to talk about it. I think everything starts small somewhere like, and then more and more people uh, will talk or care about something and it becomes more of the topic of conversation at let's say the dinner table. Um, so hopefully people will become more aware of how food is being grown um, and impacting our overall climate and understand it. Like if you bring up regenerative agriculture at the bar, hopefully more people will know what it is. And you can start by just talking about regenerative agriculture at the bar, <laughs> whenever bars open again. Uh, <laughs> and that was really gloom, but yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I know this has already been a bit of the Alden show, but sorry, I guess this is gonna be a trend that continues for this episode. Alden, what happened with 45Q and now there's new guidance from uh, the Treasury Department around it. Can you catch people up on what 45Q is What's happened since it's been announced and what is happening now? So 45Q is uh, a section in the um, U.S. federal budget. And 45Q was first introduced in 2008. And it was uh, a, a, a reg it, it, it allows there to be a regulation that creates a tax credit. Originally, it was totally focused on a tax credit for projects um, that install for installing carbon capture and storage technology on power plants. And it's been modified a number of times and then it was significantly modified in 2018 and 19 uh, under the uh, Trump administration. And basically, if you, uh, as of 2018, if you install um, carbon capture and storage on a power plant, gas fired or coal fired power plant, or you do what Climeworks is doing. This came in in 2019 and directly draws CO2 out of the atmosphere and eat and do and and inject it permanently into an underground reservoir or uh, use it to enhance oil recovery rates or otherwise the word they use is utilize it. You can get a tax credit and the tax credit on, the, on its face looks pretty big. It's been phased in over time, but by 2026, um, there are two different values. If you permanently store the CO2 that you either captured from a gas plant or a power plant um, and inject it in the ground, that tax credit start right now is around $22.5 a ton and goes up to $50 a ton by 2026. And if you use that, um, that CO2 to inject in oil wells and increase the amount of oil you're pulling out of any well, that's called enhanced oil recovery or EOR. That tax credit is right now around uh, just under $13 a ton 
and by 2026 would be $35 a ton. Um, the tax credit when it was introduced has one set of rules for projects that were not built until after February 2018 and another set of rules for projects that were built before 2018. And I, you know, I get depressed by that sort of stuff. So I paid, made a point of trying not to pay too much attention to the details. But the scandal was the um, auditor decided just in the last year that about $1.1 billion worth of tax credits that have been claimed under 45Q, um, mostly um, uh, with respect to projects that were constructed prior to um, 2018, were... Um, fraud. And um, I, I, I'm not exactly sure what the final number is. Last time I checked, the IRS had recovered $598 million of that uh, $1.1 billion, And I don't know if their intent is to get the whole $1.1 billion back, but they've recovered uh, more than half of it already. Um, uh, and that's kind of sad when that sort of stuff happens. Right now, and it's really coincidental, it's not as a result of the finding of fraud. They, they are, the um, IRS is in a new regulation proposing some changes to the rule to make it more accessible to different projects. And uh, they're inviting the public to read the rule and make comment over the next uh, about 50 days. Um, and I, 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 I like a lot of the signals in 45Q, but it still doesn't go where those in the food and fiber industry need it to go. So basically the rule says, distinguishes between your carbon capture technology or your industrial process and utilization of the CO2. So under the existing rule, even with the new changes that are supposed to make it more hospitable, if Climeworks, for example, draws CO2 out of the atmosphere and pumps that CO2 into a greenhouse and the greenhouse makes tomatoes and cucumbers, they qualify for the tax credit, the, 30, the, the $35 version. So the CO2 is pulled out of the atmosphere with a whole bunch of fans that consume a whole bunch of electricity, is piped to a greenhouse, um, is sequestered in tomatoes and cucumbers, and then the carbon in the tomatoes and the cucumbers is mostly released back to the environment after those, those uh, tomatoes and cucumbers are eaten. The, the, but if a farmer adopts regenerative practices, and pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere and grows tomatoes and cucumbers and sequesters incremental carbon in the soil permanently, they don't qualify for the tax credit. So you get that I'm not a happy puppy. So basically, IRS has said, if you store the CO2 you've captured through the process of photosynthesis, you get the tax credit. But if you collect the CO2 you capture through the process of, of photosynthesis, you don't get the tax credit. You have to build some big industrial plant to get the tax credit to collect the CO2. Now, at 35 bucks a ton, US crop producers could be drawing down 400 to 450 million tons a year and building up the soil organics carbon stocks and making a lot more tomatoes and cucumbers sustainably. Is the reason for that, um, 
is it, I know it's much more easy. It's much easier to administer a program like this that deals with fewer recipients, especially ones that are much bigger, as opposed to many, many, many farmers or something like that. Um, or was it something that was more of a political deal that had to be cut in order for this to happen? Both, probably some other reasons too. You know, you at think? the risk of attracting ire, I think it's just that the big companies whose businesses are big industrial, you know, manufacturing processes are um, much more astute and dedicated lobbyists than the farm community. Farmers are too busy making food, building, producing food. And I don't think in my, I don't think there's a political um, opposition to rewarding food and fiber producers for what they can do in this regard. I don't think their voice has been heard in Washington DC in a, in a sort of a coherent way. Um, I hope we can find ways to, to help that along because what food and fiber producers are doing with regenerative agriculture is exactly what is, is served the purpose that this tax credit was, was, was intended for. That's number one. And number two, you know, I, I had, we all admit that um, uh, tracing and, uh, and, and verifying that the carbon has been stored can be complicated. But in fact, if you read the regulation, it's no less complicated for the projects that are approvable under this bill than it is for um, for farmers and food, food uh, for farmers. So um, complication isn't the argument to to not have food and fiber production in. They just they they distinguish between there's two there's three but I'll just focus on two steps in this process. One is how are you drawing the CO2 down, and the second is how it's how is it being used. And right now. If it's being used in photosynthesis, you get the tax credit as long as photosynthesis wasn't the process for drawing the CO2 down. In other words, right now, the most cost-effective, best return on investment, carbon drawdown and sequestration strategy does not qualify for the US tax credit under 45 feet. Well, any concluding thoughts from anyone? I think we covered pretty good ground. Thanks for saving us on that topic, Alden, with your uh, extreme erudition on tax policy. I think yeah. that the rest of us are holding our breaths, right? Uh, did everybody else just hang uh, up on the podcast so yeah. about 10 minutes ago? Um, you're busy taking notes. No, it's a, that, this is why we no. ask you to be on. Yeah. Um, well, anything else anyone wants to bring up or are you feeling, feeling pretty good about wrapping it up here? Feels okay to me. Yep, feels okay to me. Thank you. Yeah, feels good. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing all of your thoughts. Uh, links to various things mentioned are in the show notes. If you would like to follow up with any of the panelists, uh, thanks for listening. Also, if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher. Tell your friends. You can drop us a note at podcast, singular, P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nori.com. Um, this show, this format is new. We're still experimenting with it. So if you have thoughts on it, you want us to change something or you like what you're hearing, feel free to drop us a note. And thank you so much for listening.